The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan. Hi, I'm Dr. Patricia Halligan, and this is Recovery the Hero's Journey. Recovery research shows us that one of the factors helping people achieve and sustain recovery from addiction is a sense of spirituality and finding a sense of meaning and purpose in life. Today, we're going to explore the soul, spirituality, and how to live more soulfully with greater depth. There's no better expert on the soul and spirituality than Thomas Moore. Thomas Moore is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Care of the Soul. He has written 25 other books about bringing soul to personal life and culture, deepening spirituality, humanizing medicine, finding meaningful work, imagining sexuality with soul, and doing religion in a fresh way. In his youth, he was a Catholic monk and studied music composition. He has a PhD in religious studies from Syracuse University and was a university professor for a number of years. Thomas is also a psychotherapist, influenced mainly by Carl Jung and James Hillman. In recent years, he has returned to his role as a non-aligned theologian, publishing his translation of the New Testament Gospels, writing in the sand, Jesus, Spirituality, and the Soul of Gospels, and the Soul of Christmas. His most recent books are Ageless Soul and Soul Therapy. He lectures internationally and consults for organizations and privately. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you, Trish, for having me. My pleasure. I've really been looking forward to our conversation today. In your book, Care of the Soul, you write that the great malady of the century is loss of soul. What is soul and how do we lose it? Uh, It's very difficult to say specifically and to define the soul. However, I think we could say a few things that would help us out. One is that the soul is our our, uh, immeasurable depth. As human beings, we are vast. We, uh, We have so much potential. We have deep, profound emotions and thoughts. We have a huge future that is endless and full of opportunities and uh, difficulties. And uh, we, uh, uh, so I think the soul is all that vastness. It's beyond emotion. It's not just about the emotions. That's why I can't, although I often talk this way, I don't, I can't uh, equate the soul with the heart when we talk about our heart, because it's even more than that. It's, that's why it touches on the spiritual, but it does so not by going upward so much like a church steeple that goes down into the crypt. It's ah. like going down into the basement where you, uh, you find your, your history and your deep, deep, profound feelings. And actually, I think the other thing the soul is, it's the spring, like a water spring 
of your identity. So you find that you are not really who you make yourself to be, like consciously, mm-hmm. that there's a spring in which our life constantly flows up from. And we, can, we have so many opportunities and we get inspirations to do things and to uh, sometimes to be creative, sometimes just to expand our lives and change. All of that, I think, is the power of the soul coming from deep within. I love that definition. So you also said my individuality comes from my soul, not my head. And that made a lot of sense to me. So I'm not my thoughts and I'm not the mask that I wear in society. I'm not the credentials after my name. Sometimes there's no words connected to this depth, correct? That's right. It's very difficult to find language for it. That's why uh, I take it as a challenge, and I have from the beginning of my career, to find language that ordinary people can identify with and understand, and yet convey these qualities that are quite mysterious. And if we lose connection with our soul, does the soul just disappear or what happens if we disconnect from our soul? What do you tend to see in your psychotherapy practice from people that have disconnected from their soul? And I wonder how many different ways we disconnect from our soul. We do certainly disconnect from our soul. There's no question. And one, there are lots of ways. For example, you might get so caught up in your business or your work that you lose sight of those things that are important to your soul, like your family, uh, relationships, friendships, and and other things, uh, creative activities, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. nature. All these things are important to the soul, so you can lose touch with it. That doesn't mean that that you are forever now going to be apart from your soul. You can recover the connection. It's, It's not so much that the soul disappears as your connection with it goes. So it's temporary. But, yes, it's more, it can, it, one hopes it's temporary. Right. That you wake up and see that this, we need to connect. But if you look at our society, I think generally, although there's a lot of soul in our society, still, generally speaking, I think what characterizes us has been a loss of soul for a long time. Mm-hmm. We have got caught up in our machinery, in our way of looking at things that is very hardware. Uh, kind of language and imagery. And uh, we need to recover our soul. We, and the sign, you know, that we have all these divisions now among people, that is a, one of the common signals of loss of soul, that you begin to polarize your whole life. And so I think that we have good signs that today our society uh, needs to recover its soul. And I think that's more important than to Uh, just try to focus in on literal issues one at a time. I think you're right. Now, you have been a practicing psychotherapist for 40 years. Yes. And I know that you practice something called soul psychology, which fascinates me and I don't know much about because as a psychiatrist, and I have a lot of colleagues who are psychologists and psychiatrists, I'm not listening that they're talking to their patients about soul or spirituality, no. or God, no, right? And I, I just wonder, I know you lecture about soul psychology. You've lectured at NYU, at McGill University in uh, Quebec. Uh, you've lectured uh, at Sloan Kettering centers all over the world. Can you tell me a little bit about what is soul psychology and how does this apply to your patients? 
Well, I, uh, what I'm doing essentially is, uh, is including, I'm, I'm doing what we usually do as therapists, but I'm also then including what I think has been left behind. And that is uh, a feeling for the mysterious things that, uh, develop, that occur in our lives. Uh, looking at uh, figures in our lives, people who have been in our lives and events, episodes, narratives. Uh, those are all part, very important part of the soul because the soul is manifested more poetically than uh, literally and measurably. So you have to have a poetic sense to know what's going on at that deep level. I also uh, spend a lot of the time uh, in therapy working on dreams. Now, a lot of uh, uh, psychologies do that. So that's that's something I do as well, because I, my experience is that looking at the dreams, which is almost like the inherent natural poetry of a person's life, you get a sense of what's going on much deeper than you can get from narrative, uh, the, the conscious narrative of a person, what they say. And, I, and so the dreams are absolutely important to me. I find them to be very, very helpful. So all of that work then, thinking poetically, going deeper, and including the mysterious. I'm not, I really don't do anything from a particular religious point of view. Mm-hmm. I was a Catholic monk, but that's another time in my life. Right. And I've studied the religions of the world very carefully. And I've uh, studied Carl Jung, who, who brought together psyche and spirit in his work, and a lot of mystery. And I worked with James Selman, who was quite a rationalist, and yet he, he also was extremely aware of the importance of the poetic. So I put all that together, and that then is specifically then what makes it a soul therapy. It's, it's wonderful what you're saying. So you encourage the person to dive deep, even into the shadow, even into the parts of himself or herself that might not feel politically correct, right? Let's dive deep into your hate or your jealousy or your envy, your rage, right? Into it, right into it. Absolutely, right? Because it's a part of who we are. And let's come up with a narrative. Tell me your story. You believe in storytelling, correct? Yes, I think storytelling is one. It's not the only, but it's one important way of getting at the soul, yes. Right, because I think sometimes people who just focus on cognitive behavior therapy out of a manual, uh, let's fix the problem. Here's your symptoms and let's uh, give you some short-term psychotherapy to fix the problem. I think they're missing something, aren't they? Because if, if you sit with me for a while and you tell me, oh, this is what I'm hearing, help me connect the dots. And all of a sudden I'm the heroine in my own story. I might have this sense of mystical and I might see myself as some kind of heroic figure on a heroic journey. Uh, there's something poetic about that and meaning, deeply meaningful, isn't it? Absolutely. One thing I do not do, very clearly, I, I am not a problem solver. Mm-hmm. That's not what I'm interested in. And when you when you do therapy and you said you say I'm not problem solving, that really changes your, your point of view. Yes. So this this book I just published called Soul Therapy, uh, it's based somewhat on talks I gave to uh, psychiatrists and uh, uh, social workers who came to. Uh, Cape Cod in, for over 18 summers when I taught them. Oh, cool. Uh, and uh, getting their CEUs, their, uh, their continuing education credits. And uh, I love doing that work because I learned a lot 
where the psychiatrists, especially they're mainly psychiatrists, where they were in their training and what their concerns were. And I, I tried to see if I could include and introduce them to this more poetic, more mysterious mystery approach to, uh, to the psyche. And yes. I felt that there was a, a, I still meet people who have attended those things. And I feel that a lot was accomplished, actually, although I would get frustrated at times because I expected people to just eat it up and they didn't. I had to convince them of the value of it. I can see that. Well, I think all of us are striving for balance. And that's basically what people are looking for is a deep sense of meaning in their life. And they, I mean, people come into my office and they say, I want to get rid of my sense of shame. Uh, I want to learn how to love wholeheartedly. I want to feel more comfortable in my own skin. I want to know who I am and I want a deep, fulfilling career. Oh, well, is that all? Or is there anything else? You know, it's so really, this is what we're searching for. Why aren't we talking about spirituality and meaning and depth and reflection and diving deep? That, that's one of the things that I really like about Alcoholics Anonymous is that they encourage the person to do a fearless and searching moral inventory of themselves and take a look at character defects and make a list of uh, people that they have harmed and be willing to make amends to them. So at the, at the end of this deep dive into the shadow parts of the self, the person who's in recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous ends up feeling pretty integrated and pretty whole. And they don't feel like they're an imposter anymore because they're not hiding. They're not lying to themselves. They've been fully honest and transparent about, transparent about their, um, their failings and how they've stumbled. And there's some sense of comfort with embracing our failures, right? Absolutely. I learned something from uh, James Hillman, who was a, uh, my good friend over the years, and we often had many conversations where I learned a lot about therapy from him. And one of the things he always said was, go with or into the symptom. Don't oh. go against the symptom. Yeah, the I symptom, love that. Whatever that symptom is, is an expression of deeply who we are, even if it's a dark thing or shadow aspect mm -hmm. of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so the point is not really to get rid of the symptom so much. I mean, ultimately, we want people to be lighter and happier, of course, yeah. and more creative. But the way to that might be more to transform the symptom into a, a brighter, better version of itself. That's what I see. Uh, that the symptoms then, they don't go away. They, they shift in their, uh, they become more refined. They're not so compulsive. And that so makes sense. They become they become woven into the whole of one's life, your thoughts and values, and then they transform into something more valuable. That's, uh, that makes sense to me. Now, you wrote a book called The Dark Night of the Soul, uh, Dark Nights of the Soul, A Guide to Finding Your Way Through Life's Ordeals. Uh, as an addiction psychiatrist, I see a lot of people who knock on my door who are experiencing a dark night of the soul. And it's not just a dark night of the soul. It seems to be many dark months of the soul. Maybe uh, I had a woman on the show a couple of months ago, and her beautiful 30-year-old son uh, died of a heroin overdose. Uh, or I'll, I'll treat uh, people whose spouse, they've just found out the spouse has been cheating on them for years, so the marriage dissolves. Uh, 
people who have had three DWIs and their wife is leaving them and taking the kids and none of the family is speaking to them or they've lost a job. What would you say to someone who's sitting in your office in extreme grief and anguish, having a dark night of the soul, feeling maybe victimized, uh, feeling like possibly God's practical joke, feeling like life is just cruel, there's no meaning here, and life's just nothing but meaningless suffering. But what would you, how would you approach that? Well, I think a good part of therapy is education, uh, education and in, in dealing uh, with the psyche, with the soul in a deep way. And so what I do is, is I, I try to show pretty much with my own attitude toward it. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I would not join in with that judgment and those attitudes, those uh, values that the person has. I don't participate. Right. And myself, I have my own approach and my own relationship to the stories and the things she's saying or he is saying. Mm-hmm. And uh, that itself is, a, is a, I think, a, a, a way to move along. I don't just use explanation or anything, something like that. I try to say, well, you know, I try to look at those things from an angle that is not blaming, not blaming of the other person or blaming themselves. Right. Blaming is a way of avoiding the situation. Right. So I try to not to blame. I don't get into that blame of somebody. They may feel it so strongly. Mm-hmm. And they're so angry at somebody like this person who's been cheating on her for years. Yes. I don't, I don't blame and I don't get into that negative attitude. Mm-hmm. I just, I leave it open. I say, well, what an interesting story that is. Right. You know, let's go into it and tell me more about it. I sort out the story. This I get from, from Jung, who used alchemy as his, one of his main metaphors, uh-huh. where you sort things out. You put them in solution, the alchemist would say. You, and you sort them out. So I let the story break into its branches and it's all its details. And you get a lot from that. The story then is much more complex, much less easy to make quick judgments about people involved in it. And, and that helps too, to uh, sit there without, uh, with a little more neutrality. It's one of my key words, neutrality. We try to be neutral about these things as much as we can and really get into them and see what's there and deal with it. Right. So you don't jump in and say, oh, that's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. No. Right. Or what, what a narcissistic bum your, your no. uh, spouse is. Right. No. You just you get curious. You uh, examine the story. You examine all their feelings around it. It's very yeah. complicated. And you sit with them through this dark night of the soul. That's and right. I don't know about you, but I think that there's a possibility for enormous growth and depth through dark nights of the soul. Totally. Well, yes, that's what my whole book is about, about dark nights. Yes, this is an opportunity. This is an initiation, really, mm-hmm. to go through. I like the term dark nights. The reason I use that as a title of my book was I didn't want to use a word like depression, which is clinical and judgmental, and uh, does it's kind of narrow, and it doesn't really help us. Right. Dark nights is an imagistic. Again, it's in the poetic rather than the, the uh, uh, defined. And yes. so I find that that very helpful. And that changes our discussion when you think of it that way. Then we start talking to each other. We're talking about something they're going through, like it's a process to go through rather than a problem to be solved. Okay. That's a whole different paradigm shift. It's, it's wonderful. It's, it's very light and hopeful. 
Yes. Now, sometimes I have people who are sitting in my office and they feel like life is just filled with meaningless suffering. There is no God. Uh, and uh, if God is, uh, if God exists, he's sadistic and he's cruel. So you get curious about that also. Tell me more, you would say, right? Oh, yes. Okay. And just try to figure out where this, this stance comes from, how this person came to this belief system and how he feels victimized. And you get interested in it and get curious in it, but you don't try to talk him out of it. Yes. You know, I have to remember my doctorate is in religious studies. It is not in psychology. That's right. Although I did study many uh, uh, psychologists as part of that program, but primarily my degree is in religion. I have degrees in theology. So I'm very interested. I'm not a literalist. I'm a very open-minded person of yeah. You know, try to try to live that life, that spiritual life as much as I can. But I'm not attached to any belief system, really. And I've studied a lot of them uh, quite thoroughly. Mm -hmm. So when people bring up spiritual matters, I feel ready to talk to them about them. And this is what I sometimes try to convince uh, other, uh, other types of psychotherapists, that if they could just make a little effort to know something about the spiritual life, to educate themselves so that when someone brings up a spiritual matter, questions of meaning, of, uh, of guilt, of uh, trying to find their way in life, these are the things that artists and painters and novelists have and playwrights have been exploring for uh, centuries. So I think it would actually be better for a therapist to prepare themselves by reading uh, the, uh, by, by reading novels and by uh, reading poets and uh, maybe even some mystical writings to have a much larger sense of what human life is about. You're, the human being there is not this machine you're tinkering with. This is a, a vast person that has, but we've been trying to understand human life through the arts for centuries, long before psychology appeared on the scene. Now, I've heard you say you believe that we are born with our spirituality and we don't need to learn it. So I guess, Thomas, what's your definition of spirituality? Oh, that's really hard. I would <laughs> say probably it's simply, it's a very broad thing. I would say simply it is an awareness that life is mysterious and that you're going to take the, you're allow mystery. You don't, you're not to explain everything. And I find that's difficult for the modern person because they think everything should be and will be explained. I think that the spiritual life acknowledges the mysterious in, in nature and in all of life. And it, you shape your life based on that mysteriousness. And I think that makes all the difference. Now, you can, you can focus that more if you want. You say, well, I can get in touch with that through meditation or through ritual or something of that sort. That's the way the traditional religions have done it. But I think today we are at a crossroads there where traditional religion has shown its limitations. And it's, it's uh, uh, in many cases, many, many cases, it has uh, uh, become more of an obstacle than a, than a path to the spiritual life. Uh, not everyone, but a lot of people don't know where to turn because they find the institutions to be lacking for them. Now is the time to get some guidance to how to live a spiritual life without the institutions. That's a very, very wise uh, thought. 
Now, Thomas, you have studied the work and the writings of Carl Jung extensively, correct? Yes, I have. And did you know that Carl Jung, this famous Swiss psychiatrist, influenced Bill Wilson and played a critical role in the founding of AA? Yes, yes. That's, uh, he, he, uh, uh, he had a big impact on him. And you can read, you know, there have been books written about their relationship and what was going on there. Yeah, apparently he had a uh, patient by the name of Roland H., uh, he was an investment banker and a senator from Rhode Island who had a very severe alcohol use disorder. And Carl Jung, after many, many, many relapses, uh, he threw up his hands and said, medicine and psychiatry has nothing to offer you, Roland. Uh, your craving for alcohol is the equivalent of a thirst for union with God, a thirst for wholeness. Put yourself in a religious environment and cross your fingers and hope to recover. And he found his way into the Oxford group, which I guess was the group before it became Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, basically, uh, Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, wrote to Carl Jung in 1961 and said, thank you so very much. You helped me emphasize this need for a spiritual awakening uh, among people with an alcohol problem. And I guess... This is an interesting thing because Carl Jung identified this man's drinking as a yearning to be fulfilled, a search for emotional meaning, uh, a search to feel alive, a search to feel connected. So it was less self-medicating than being a seeker of uh, something spiritual in the in this alcoholic man, right? Yes, um, I, I, I could mention a a dream of a client of mine from many years ago that I've written yeah. about. Yeah. Um, so this woman was having trouble with alcohol and uh, she presented a dream in which she was in a church at the, the front of a church where in some Christian churches, there's a baptistry where babies get baptized, usually, usually babies. And while she was standing there, an angel appeared kind of floated down from the sky and placed a martini on the baptistry, on the baptismal font. Oh. And I thought that was a very key dream for this person mm-hmm. that did exactly what you're talking about. It showed that what, is, what, is, what she is looking for in the alcohol is a spiritual alcohol, or as Jung might also say, an alchemical alcohol. That means uh, not literal a poetic kind of alcohol, but it's not the drink that you have, but that stands for or poetically represents something spiritual. So even though it would seem really contradictory for an angel to do this, it isn't when you look at it closely. It's that this is what alcohol is about. It is a spiritual matter. And if you're going to deal with it, you have to think of it more broadly in that way. So the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about people needing a spiritual awakening, a profound personality change big enough to recover from alcohol problems. I guess, can you offer some advice as to best steps to take in early sobriety to attain this spiritual awakening? Because I love your dream. She's she's on the baptismal font, wash me clean, give me a rebirth so that I can be whole, so that I can be connected to a higher power. 
what, what do you think? I know you're not an addiction expert uh, per se. You've, you've self-proclaimed that to me, but what do you think this means? Uh, this, my patients come into my office and they say, I go to AA and they say, I have to have a spiritual awakening. What, what do I do? One thing I think of, personally, I tend to think of addiction as a form of love. It's, it's uh, really being loving something so much you can't do without it, and you get uh, you're, you're, you have to always be with it. It looks to me like what the Greeks called eros, not sexual, but meaning meaning a, a drive for union, for connection with something. That's that's an eros. That's what that is. So it's a love of some kind. Mm-hmm. And then the question is then. If this alcohol is an image, it's a little bit of poetry in your life. That's how I would see it. It's a bit of poet, po- poetry. What is it, what is it saying? Uh, what is it saying that you're looking for, like a poem might, about your addiction? What would that say? And I would think you'd want to explore other things that you are yearning for that you don't have in your life. And those yearnings ultimately always end up to be end up being spiritual because no limited, no particular earthly object of love is going to satisfy. This is a very ancient teaching, especially among mystics. Mm-hmm. Our, our particular loves, like if you love chocolate, if you love uh, uh, swimming, whatever you love and you just have to do it, uh, that represents a deeper, vaster love, too. And so in your looking at your life, you have to find out, you have to look at those things poetically and see what do they suggest about a much greater love that, that I'm yearning for. And with, uh, with alcohol, the tradition there that this is what they call a Dionysian, the alcohol, the spirits are Dionysian, meaning it's a particular kind of spirituality where you just need more life, you need more vitality. You need, like in other words, doing things that really make you feel alive. So if you are doing a job, let's say, that is not, has no life in it for you and then no love, you are susceptible to a, something like alcohol, to an addiction. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I had a patient once who said, I drank to feel alive. I drank to feel connected to other people, right? And. Yeah. You know, I said, well, when was the last time you felt alive? And he said, uh, you know, I remember when I was a little boy and, you know, I was climbing trees and I was riding a bike and I had a dog. And, that, you know, so in sobriety, he got himself a dog and he started to ride his bike more. So I like what you're saying. This is your, your these may be people with alcohol problems may be more sensitive than people without addiction, they may be more of a yearner, more of a seeker. Uh, This is not a bad thing, right? There's a void. No, no, that's not a bad thing. No, anyone with a big, with a huge uh, symptom and yearning, that's that's their strength if they can get through the symptomatic presentation of it. That's why I say we don't want to get rid of that symptom. Yes, because that's that's you want to keep whatever is behind. What is the deeper form of that symptom? You want to you want to protect it. Now, I've heard you say that wonder is more important than a religious doctrine. I love that statement. That's that's amazing, right? What, kids have a sense of wonder about them. When do we lose that? A religious doctrine is valuable only as a piece of poetry, but people have a very hard time with that. They don't. They want to be literal about it all, and that's where it all falls down. 
So if you're caught up in something that is dead, that is, it's dead because it has no poetics in it. The poetics can give life to something because that is alive. It's, it's, it never ends. You can constantly reflect on your teaching if you want to do that. Mm -hmm. But if you don't do that, then um, you get stuck on it and you lose your sense of wonder. Wonder is so important to the spiritual life because that's what the whole thing's about. You, you look out at night at the, at, the, at the starry sky. If you don't feel wonder, you must be half alive. Oh, I agree. And that wonder then can affect all your all your religious understanding and teachings. All of that, it can affect it, give it life. If the wonder is taken out of it and you think, oh, I believe this, and this is what I've been taught, end of story, then what you've got is dead. It does not have life in it. Right. I've got patients and they'll say, I haven't gone for a walk in years. I never get outside. And I'm thinking, oh, man, you're missing a huge life source, right? Definitely, yes. yes. If someone is having a spiritual difficulty, one of the things I ask them to read, there are several things, but one of the things I ask them to read is Henry David Thoreau, who was a very spiritual man, very, very spiritual man. But he will say he shows very concretely over and over again, that his spirituality came to him through nature. Now, was he, he the man that in, had, is that Walden Pond? Walden Pond. He had to get into his canoe. But he wrote Walden, the book Walden, but he also has wonderful uh, journals that you can read that are very, very enjoyable to read, where he presents his beliefs and his theology, but it's a theology of nature. A very, very uh, good, good place for a person to, to add life and soul to their spirituality. And it's soothing also. All you have to do if you're having a bad day, go for a bike ride, go for a walk through the woods. Yeah, sit out on a porch and look at the night sky like you're saying. Uh, there's, yeah, I agree and, with you there. And Thoreau has an essay telling you how to walk, which is very good. Uh, how to how to walk, not just be unconscious about it, but be really close to nature and and let nature guide you where you should walk and how to walk. You know, um, are you familiar with the group of seven? It's a group of uh, seven artists in Canada. It's my favorite uh, painters. So all I have to do if I'm having a bad day, I've got some paintings by an artist, uh, Tom Thompson, and man, Frederick Varley. Take a look at these northern. Canadian uh, yep. islands and pine trees and dark navy blue waters with white caps or or listen to a piece of music. Uh, when I was in Paris after my daughter's wedding uh, three years ago, I was wandering through the streets of Paris and I fell upon this woman who was singing opera in a square. And it was just the most magnificent uh, feeling in the world. It, it changes the sense of boredom or the doldrums or the deadness and all of a sudden you're alive and it's poetic and it's mystical and it transports you into a whole different dimension doesn't it that gives new meaning to the phrase art therapy because <laughs> art therapy is often used to diagnose and it's 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 exploited but what you're talking about is including experiences of art that really affect you not any pieces at all, but those that really affect you and speak to you and making them part of your life as part of your uh, coming back to life. And so the arts are extremely important in that. I'm a musician myself. And so I, I think music is 
extremely important in that process. Someone, a friend from Canada recently gave me some, uh, gave me a couple of books on Thompson. Oh, uh, really? Work. Yeah. So oh. I, uh, and I know what you're talking about and I have my own favorites, of course. And uh, my wife is a painter, a professional painter. Is she? Yeah. So I'm, 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 you know, with art, all, every single day she comes home and shows me the painting she did that day from her studio. And, uh, it's it's like you know it's 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 life it's value i love being in a family where my daughter's a musician and my wife is a is a painter and uh, my my stepson is an architect and I, we call our home sometimes a, an art center you know kind of a <laughs> because that's what it feels like but it's so important to us to be so to me the arts are like the other side of spirituality so you want to, if you want a spiritual life then Right next to it are, is a life in the arts. It's not separate. It's like there are two sides of the same thing. That makes a lot of sense to me. After I read your book, Care of the Soul, I started a book, and it was things of beauty, things of joy. So anything that resonated with my soul, anything that would feed my soul, whether it was a painting, my favorite songs, whether it was a favorite poem, whether it were favorite people, I cut out pictures of favorite people, famous people that I had never met, people, famous people that were dead, people that inspired me, made me feel connected, made me feel, I don't know, just glad to be alive. It, it's a wonderful thing to do. So maybe that's something that you're saying might help awaken the spirit and feed the soul of somebody new in recovery. Uh, look to nature, look to the arts, try to develop a sense of wonder and pat yourself on the back that you have an enormous craving and thirst for a greater c connection to something, right? Uh, you should, you know, we should rec record that last thing you just said or put it in, in, in print somehow because it's really a very good summary of well, how to, I'd say, how to deal with addiction. I'm just summarizing everything that you've actually already written about. And it's, I also love what you said. You said, find sacred in the ordinary. That makes me feel peaceful when you say that. It's like, okay, so go out for a mindful walk or sit on your porch or what, what would be peaceful to me today? I've got my daughter and her husband and their 70 pound dog visiting me for the past three weeks while their house flooded. And so, find sacred in the ordinary. I'm going to take this big dog out in the backyard and throw the Frisbee around and watch him destroy my yard every time he slides 10 feet. You know, he takes all the sod with him, but it's funny. And he delights in this Frisbee. That is some, somebody that lives in the moment and it's fun, right? Well, think about a Frisbee. You know, it's, uh, it's such a good toy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very spiritual thing. You know, it flies through the air and hovers at uh, it has its own interesting direction. It doesn't won't go the direction you want it necessarily. It will take its own way and go in its own fashion. And uh, and yet there's a great joy in watching it and catching it and playing with maybe with a dog or with another person. So uh, there's everything that's looking at a frisbee as a sacred object. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, yes. Yeah. And. Uh, uh, going back to uh, Henry David Thoreau, he said that uh, taking a bath was his sacrament. That he writes oh. that in, in his uh, memoirs. He says that when he took a bath, that was a sacrament. And it was his holy thing to do. He didn't have to canonize it, make it anything special. Just taking a bath was sacramental to him. 
So these are the simple things that we can do to slow ourselves down and find out what feeds our soul. Absolutely. This is my idea that, that it's, but rather than solving our problems, the life problems, what we need to do is nurture our soul. Yes. In other words, if you do these things that will nurture your soul, it will give you some peace and resolve some of these compulsions that get you into trouble. So that's, that's a better place, I think, to go than to be solving the problem after you're in trouble. Nurture your soul with simple, it's very simple things that do that. The tradition in, in history is that friendship is the most important way of taking care of your soul, friendship. So being with mm-hmm. your friends, mm-hmm. a good start. Eating, eating well, dining well. This, not, whether it's healthy or not is not the issue in this particular case. Right, it's, does it taste good? Yes. For community. Yes. For connection with the people you're eating with. And you make an art of eating and an art of cooking. Cooking can be a very therapeutic thing to do. It's funny, my son-in-law flew in, my daughter and the dog have been here for two and a half weeks. He flew in last night and my daughter said, can you please make him a meal? And I said, well, why don't we go out for dinner? And she said, no, make him feel the love. Cook for him. He, and that's all, that's his love language. He wanted a home cooked meal. Right. right? And I enjoyed making it too. And all it was, was meatloaf. It was my, and the thing that made it special, because I'm not a cook, is this is my grandmother's recipe. So there's something very meaningful about using my grandmother's meatloaf recipe and cooking for my son-in-law. It was a lovely hour, but talk about ordinary. I mean, this was meatloaf with a bottle of ketchup on the table, but it felt the more wonderful. Ordinary, the better. You know, if right. you try too hard, it, it, it kind of lose, you lose something. Also, if you can include memory, uh, if you can include the memory, so in deciding what to serve somebody, you might remember uh, something that they connect with food and, uh, or somebody that they connect, or there's a family tradition, or that you've done this right. before, or right. that they once said they like this, or they, whatever it is, make the connection. You know, it's funny, my grandmother watched uh, Lawrence Wilk every Sunday night, and I pretty much spent weekends with her. So at seven o'clock on Sundays, we'd watch Lawrence Wilk. So the, not that I like that kind of music, but if I ever hear Lawrence Wilk, an old show on TV, I'm thinking of my grandmother. And it's, it's a wonderful memory, right? So use imagination to heal and to become spiritual. Use poetry, use art, use music slow down, enjoy the, find the sacred and the ordinary. You don't have to read spiritual literature. I didn't know that um, uh, Emerson had a bunch of writings, you know, like journal articles that I could read. Well, there is own personal journal writings, right? Well, both Emerson and, and uh, Thoreau, who was his friend. Oh, that's right. Had journals, both of them. Uh, both of them approach religion in a very, or spirituality in a very similar way. But Thoreau went overboard almost in being in nature. And uh, his journals are so concrete and beautifully like written like a poet. So both of them, Emerson and uh, Thoreau, are very important to me. And I would include the third person there, the New England writers uh, where I live. And uh, the other one is Emily Dickinson, who oh. also shows in her poetry and her life how to how to live in a way that is spiritual in your own fashion and your own design. So she wore white at a good good portion of her life. She she didn't leave her home. 
that was her way of expressing her spiritual vision. And it's eccentric, but it's, it's good. And very much an advocate of nature in her poems, wasn't she? Absolutely. Advocate of nature, which, you know, was around her in her garden and in the hills around Amherst, Massachusetts. Now, what can you tell me about the power of meditation and the soul? And if you have a patient in your office who says, teach me how to meditate, what, uh, what would you say? How would you teach somebody how to meditate? What do you think about meditation and the well, soul? I, I don't... Uh, my, my way of meditation, the soul meditation to me is different from a highly spiritual meditation. Ah, okay. So I wouldn't teach probably, I mean, I've done it, you know, as a monk, I did all the, the very, very high spiritual meditations. But today with my interest in soul, I'm interested in more in meditating, uh, contemplating that's part of the world. Like being in nature, you can meditate by going for a walk in nature. I did that as a monk. We went for we meditated by walking. That was a big part of our meditating. Another way to meditate for me, for me, my main form of meditation is at the piano. So oh. I play the piano meditatively. I, I have the intention and the quality of playing music uh, to be my, my meditation. I do it that way. I like that better than sitting somewhere by myself and trying to get out of my body or out of my environment. I want mm -hmm. to be in my environment. And connect to your to, soul. I want to be connected. I don't want to be disconnected. That makes sense to me. A lot of people are heaving a sigh of relief. These are the those of us that if we sit and look outside and try to breathe and you know just meditate our uh, stress away, it doesn't work for a lot of people. You know, I don't want to say anything at all negative about that. It's a very positive thing, and many people get great benefits from it. So many today. Yes. Yes. It's not my thing. It's not for everybody. It's not my life. It's not. I want to be meditating. I want to be contemplative, definitely. I want to lose myself in the world I, I live in, especially in its beauty. So in its art and nature and music and so on. Now, you wrote a book called A Religion of One's Own, and you suggest that people can pick and choose different parts of different religions uh, and that resonate with them and craft their own religion. It, yes. If you could pick and choose your favorite parts from all the different world religions, give me a couple. Which, well, which would you say, choose? Let me say, first of all, that's not what this book is about, picking little pieces from the world's religions. That's a little suggestion along the way. But the, oh. the bigger theme is what we're talking about here is develop a spiritual life in, that's suited to you and your world through nature, art, and friendship, and that kind of thing, ethics. There's oh. so many aspects of it. But one of the things that can help you is that the religions of the world are full of beauty and depth of insight. They're all, they all have wonderful parts. You may, you may not like some things that the institution is doing, but I bet if you go deeper into that tradition, you'll find wonderful insights and beautiful art uh, that will enrich you. So I think what you could do easily is pick up some uh, Sufi poetry. A lot of people like to read Rumi. That's a good place to start. Oh. Get some Sufi poetry from that religion. Go to Zen Buddhism and read some of the teachings and stories from Zen Buddhism. They can be very simple and change the way you look at life. I always recommend reading the Tao Te Ching of China, oh. which is a, a fairly small book. You read it in about a half hour, but it's very simple teachings about how not to force things in life and mm -hmm. how to go with the flow of life 
and to be with nature rather than against it. That is a very important teaching that could be the foundation for a spiritual life. That's what I mean. You can go, you don't have to become a member of any of these religions, but you can find out what their basic teachings are and take them to heart. Oh, I think Wayne Dyer said uh, a lot about the Tao Te Ching. He did. He was, he was very big on the Tao Te Ching and he, he gave some wonderful talks on it. Yes. Um, do you, are you familiar with uh, Thomas Merton's Third Step Prayer or the Third Step Prayer of AA? I am not. No, I'm very familiar with Thomas Merton, but I don't know that. No. Can, can I read it to you? Sure. Okay, I've got it on my phone here. And it's one of my very, very favorites for people who are new to recovery when everything is falling down around them. And Thomas Merton... Was he a monk? He was a Catholic monk, yes. He was the Cistercian, which is a very demanding, uh, very stark life, uh, monk's life. It's not, not just, it's not an easy life. It's very, very, uh, uh, a very tough life to live, but he was happy in that life for the most part. So he wrote this and he said, my God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing it. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost. This this to me is a prayer of absolute surrender, and it really mirrors the third step prayer in Alcoholics Anonymous, which basically says, um, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do, do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. So these are two lovely surrender prayers. Yes, they are prayers of uh, acknowledging that you need to empty yourself in some fashion. It's not a neurotic, it's not a neurotic way of, of uh, being negative about yourself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a positive emptying to let life in. Do not be so full of all your worries and concerns and all that self-talk and, and focus on analyzing yourself and trying to be better, trying to improve, improve yourself all the time, but rather to empty and let, uh, let life itself, the force of life, uh, give you the catharsis you need, the cleaning out, and also um, give you new life. Now, last question for you before we stop. If you have a person in front of you filled with shame, shame goes hand in hand with addiction. And this person says, I am not worthy of happiness. I'm not worthy of self-actualization and fulfillment. I've done a lot of bad things and squandered a lot of years, and I just hate myself. How do you get past shame? Well, in that particular case, I'd probably, what I might say is, uh, Boy, if you think you're not worthy, I'm not worthy at all. Mm, <laughs> you know? I like that. 
I don't have any. Uh, no, we're not worth anything. What are, what are we human beings? You know, we're right. stupid. We're dumb. We do. We make mistakes all the time. We're totally imperfect, imperfect as, as you can get. And yet, in spite of that, we we our dignity is that we keep going in life, and we don't blame ourselves for that. It's just a human condition. All of us are in this boat together. All human beings. It's uh, Christians call it an original sin. It means that it's something that's just there. It's you're imperfect from from the word go. So that's you have to accept that and then go on from there with happiness. And who deserves anything? I like your stance, right? That so you you join him. We're all human. We've all made mistakes. We've all fallen down. You're no more no no more worse than I am. That's right. And. You have an online live six-week course on soul psychology. I do. Uh, who is that for? It's for anybody who wants to take my work, like if they've read my books or if they know what I'm talking about, that they like to go further with it. Um, it's, um, it's a further study. It's kind of a study uh, group in a way. Um, I teach. I, I give a, a, a lesson once a week, and then people talk to each other and with me all week long. And um, it, it lasts almost a year if you do all of it, 36 lessons. But you, I present it in chunks of uh, six courses. So um, the people are loving it, and they are really attached to it. The other day, they said to me, some of them said, can I sign up for 10 years? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I'll have to think about that one. Uh, I'm, let's see now. I'm 80 now. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> are uh, you really? You, you, I you, yeah, I think you, age is a state of mind. It is. <laughs> it sounds like a wonderful course. If you had two or three adjectives to describe your life, what would you choose? Oh, I don't know about that. I, uh, I, I think I could, I, the only way I can answer is that I'm very, I'm very happy, but the brood of base of my life is my family. And uh, just, I just love being with my family. And uh, I like where I live. That's an important thing to do. I love the work I do. I just can't wait to start a new book. I, I started writing one today, in fact, and I just can't, I, I just love to keep at it. So I love the, the, the art of writing. All those things are a great gift to me. And I've got things I have to face and deal with like everyone else, but these are the things that keep me going. Well, you're an inspiration and I'm just really enjoying our conversation. And I'm so sad that we're coming to an end, but uh, Thomas, you inspire uh, me and the world because I think what you've done is you've taken your talents, you've aligned them with the needs of the world. And what I get from you, the most important thing I get from you is find out what you love. Really go after what your soul needs. You said once that the meaning of life is to find out what your soul needs and to take care of your soul. That's really the meaning of life. You enjoy your life. You have a lot of passion. So I think you give the rest of us freedom to do the same and look for sacred in the ordinary. It's just beautiful and poetry everywhere and beauty everywhere. Uh, I think it was Van Gogh who said, uh, to know God is to love many things. Oh, I love that. Isn't that beautiful? I never heard. That's very good. But I just, I really enjoyed our time together. And I think you've given a lot of people just a wealth of information here on how to live soulfully and deeply and with imagination, creativity, and poetry. It's lovely. 
Well, I've loved talking with you too, Trish. I, I, I don't remember a conversation recently I've had that I just kept wanting to say so much and get involved because we're really together in this. So it's, you do a terrific job. Thank you. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate you being on the show and I, I just can't say enough. I look forward to your next book. I do too. I All right. To talk to you again. Me too. Well, this is Recovery, the Hero's Journey with Thomas Moore on soulful living and spirituality. Thank you for joining us and uh, enjoy your week. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, the Hero's Journey is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.